podcast by artists for artists we talk cash shit about everything sometimes we get messy and it all counts as art because we say so i'm mel i'm black and a woman and an artist at my best i manage to be all three phenomenally this week i'm an ebay reseller of 90s era r&b memorabilia a mystery shopper for rich hermits and i run a luxury lifestyle blog for black capitalists entitled bloop Yeah, what's up? Um, I'm Maximiliano, Maxi Max, the Red Ranger, and recent watcher of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> For everybody listening, sitting at home, wondering how to, they can support uh, Nat Turner Project, here is how. Subscribe to be a Patreon of NTP. There are tons of great perks uh, supporting us, duh. Also exclusive Patreon-only podcast episodes, and our now legendary Patreon-exclusive long-running zine publication, Book of Sedition. NTP, we got an Etsy. With all of our publications and our newest zine, Black Abbey, based on our 2020 Black Abbey residency with a Black Art Ecology of Portland, Sharita Town. We got totes, we got buttons, advice, etc. And now our buttons are limited numbers, runs, editions, and future currency. Subscribe to us on iTunes and all streaming platforms. Follow us at Nat Turner Project on all the social medias. Got a question or a comment and want to confess your love of Melanie or me? Email us at natrenderproject0 at gmail.com because without the zero, it goes to some white lady on the East Coast. No. <laughs> Word. No. <laughs> so today we are sitting in our lovely new podcast studio. Um, that third voice you heard um, is our first guest to the space, Ashley Stone Myers. Hi, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so just a little bit about Ashley before we get into it. Um, Ashley Stillmeyers is a writer, editor, and culture worker. She has curated exhibitions and public programming for a diverse set of arts institutions along the West Coast, including those in San Francisco, California, Oakland, California, Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. 
She has been in academic residency at the Bemis Center for Contemporary Art in Omaha, Nebraska, and the BAM Center in Banff, Alberta. She has served as Northwest editor for Art Practical and has contributed writing to BOM Magazine, Rhizome, Arts.Black, and SFAQ-NYAQ. In 2017, Stillmeyers was named director and curator of the Art Gym and Belushi Pavilion at Merrill Hurst University, and the following year was made co-curator of the 2019 Portland Biennial. Currently, she is program director for the Multicultural Resource Center at Reed College and contracting as an independent curator. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you very much. That is a lot. That's a mouthful. That's too much. That needs to be a little short. <laughs> I've never like registered how very long that is until just right now. So thank you. I'm going to go home and edit that quite a bit. I mean, I don't know how. You just do a lot. You do all of the things. Too many things, though. I think there's something to be said for less things. Maybe that's a lesson of 2020. Yeah. <laughs> something to be said for less things. Fair enough, yeah. So we'll start off with the question we ask everyone now since March of 2020. How are you doing with all of this? I mean, trash. Like, is there a different, <laughs> is there a different answer? I feel like, you know, I'm trying to be mindful of how extraordinary lucky I was this year. You know, like so many people um, lost their jobs and like struggled with so many like extreme instabilities that I was lucky to kind of skirt. So I want to be mindful of that and be grateful for that but just on like a human level I don't know that any of us didn't have like a totally trash uh 14 months so yeah um that's how that is my wardrobe has never been good but it's really taken <laughs> a turn <laughs> lots of like jammies and sweatsuits and things that are not fine outdoors so we'll see how this like return to public space works out for me and what sort of clothes I figure out how to put on that's a legitimate worry. I've completely run out of, like, operating functional jeans. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't fit in my jeans anymore. So, like, mm -hmm. the stretchy pants just may be outside, and everyone will have to forgive me. <laughs> There's some, like, coordinated sets, though. Is that grandma or is that great? Like, matching I think that's tops cool. and bottoms. I'm probably not the best character. <laughs> I'm not really known for my fashion sense. <laughs> We're in that together, and I will report back with what we're getting away with now in 2021. But I fully endorse, like, the onslaught of leisure wear, lounge wear as the new chic. I think that's a thing that needs to happen. So There we go. Single-handedly. Yes. Maybe I'll lead the charge. A lot of uh, future movies, it looks like they're just wearing leisure wear. <laughs> like the clothes of the future. So. There you go. <laughs> Cast me. Call me. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. Yeah. So all the things that Melina said. Thank you, Ashley, for being here, our first guest inside of our new studio. Thanks for risking COVID and coming and joining us. I mean, it's um, very beautiful and very fancy. So I'm excited. This is, you know, for me. I told you earlier, feeling like a princess. I got cheese. I got fizzy water. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Yeah. So, so my first question to you is, um, I'm curious about what art, what projects um, you're currently looking forward to, either yours or if you're like watching um, other things unfold that you're excited about. Yeah, I have like some real answers to that and then I have like some snarky answers to that. 
We welcome it all. Cool. Real answers to that. Um, I know that both Sharita and Intisar are having Portland Art Museum shows this year, and I'm just, um, I love the way that both of those folks work and the way that they like integrate community into what they're doing, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that manifests in the space of that museum in particular and the ways that they're um, hopefully going to push some of what that museum does. Um, I'm continually so excited about what the two of them work on, so I can't. I've heard little tiny bits of what those things might look like, and I'm really, really, really excited about that. Um, I'm starting to make exhibitions again, which I'm like mixed feelings <laughs> excited about. Um, but some of the projects are going to be really cool. Um, I'm hoping to be making something with the lumber room in next year, 2022. Um, so we'll see what that turns into. I don't need to tell the two of you, like the lumber room is really cool about like, what do you need mm -hmm. um, as an artist or a curator, any kind of maker. And then they sort of work with you to, to make that possible, even if it's sort of like an untraditional form or ask. And so I'm really, really excited to have that opportunity hopefully in 2022. And then my snarky answer, like literally an hour or two ago, I was like scrolling social media and I saw a press release that was like, Freeze announces unprecedented like 2021 iteration that's dealing in social justice. Okay. And I just was like, stop right now. Unprecedented where? We're gonna have to, <laughs> we're gonna have to see what that turns into. So I'm looking forward to seeing how different institutional rhetoric goes on to like totally make a, a fool of itself in what it proposes that it's going to do and it's absolutely not going to do. So is that like a redux from the summer of 2020 surge of social consciousness? They're going to keep hitting it until they knock themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to keep trying. And I'm looking forward to all the iterations. Like earnestly, I'm looking forward to seeing if anyone does something interesting that like feels like something but um so far i haven't seen it mm. not yet yeah so i think i can't speak for max but like for me you from like from the outside looking in you just always have seemed like a person in the know like oh thanks you're so <laughs> <laughs> Um, you just kind of have your hands in so many different pots. So I guess my next question is, and you've, you've talked a little bit about this, like this doing all of the things. So like, I'm curious about how you describe what you do to others, mm. both professionally and like to your family members. Cause I know these things are often very yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. My parents have no idea what I do. I think a lot of us say that my parents don't have a clue. They like jokingly brought my suitcases to high school graduation and were like, congrats, go, <laughs> go do something. So my parents know that they no longer pay my bills and that's like all they need to know. Like they're thrilled and they're <laughs> proud of me on that alone. So my parents have no clue what I do. Um, they're lovely and they're proud of me and I make them go to museums. And my dad's favorite joke is um, we used to paint stuff just like that in the second ward. Like he says that looking at, like any kind of like it'll be like a renaissance painting and he's like we used to paint stuff just like that in second world <laughs> so i love to make them go to museums but no they have no functionally they have no idea what people pay me money to do but that's okay 
Um, in terms of how I describe myself, I have not landed, I've not landed on anything that I've liked yet. <laughs> and so I'm hoping, I don't know, I would love to hear what the two of you all think about that because I've played with so many different terms over the years and there's not, I, I haven't landed on one that I'm not like, that's pretentious and douchey <laughs> and interna- international art English bullshit. So um, we'll have to see. You read my bio and the thing that I'm using right now is culture worker. I don't like that either because mm-hmm. I feel like it sounds like I like, I don't know, I'm like a Instagram influencer or something. <laughs> like that's not, <laughs> that's not it. Um, but I continuously fall in and out of love with the term curator. Um, I feel like, you know, we're in a, we've been in a moment for the past at least decade where that has started to be like picker of things, um, which is not at all what I feel like I do or what my curatorial practice is sort of based in. Um, I very often pick nothing where it comes to my exhibitions. Like I choose artists that I think are, interesting thinkers and could really do something with resources and so when i'm offered the opportunity to make an exhibition i approach artists in in that way um here's the institution here's what sort of money we're working with given these sort of like functional constraints like what would you like to to make with that degree or level of resources and so very often like i'm not even necessarily seeing what's in the show until like a very short time beforehand. Um, I love to work with artists making new work. And so it's like, I finished this last week and now we're like carting it into the gallery. So um, I have a little weird resentment towards curator again as like this sort of picker of things. Like everything's curated these days. And so that is like a thing that I'm not sure that I'm super interested in. And then there's other stuff like, um, producer or like you know what I mean like I'm just not I'm I can't think of a thing that like is a, a good concatenation of like a certain kind of practice that just doesn't sound like I don't know ridiculous and pretentious and all those things um I also really care about like making any level of academia like human mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like you ask how I explain maybe to people who don't even know what curatorial work is like how do I explain it to them um and to me like what I do is no good if it's not human and approachable and like for me for anyone to not be able to understand what I do is like then what am I doing you know what I mean so I have not found a term yet. We'll see how much longer culture worker stays in this, in that bio. Probably not much longer now that I've heard it out loud. Um, but we'll see. I have not I have not landed on a thing yet that I think makes perfect sense and feels good. Yeah. It feels to me like you're very much a person who just does the things that you're doing and you just hope the labels come later yeah <laughs> I'll let someone call me what they want to call me and it's gonna switch like depending on who I work with you know what I mean they're gonna be like she's this kind of administrator or like she really was like some other sort of more creative collaborator or whatever so um not super attached to to what we want to call it just um get that w9 turned in so we can, <laughs> we can call it a day when I'm done 
I'm wondering if you could like speak a little bit about your the overlaps between your like writing practice and your like curatorial practice. Mm, yeah. And um, yeah, like the way those feed into each other, maybe even like surprising ways they inform each other. Yeah. Um, my writing practice has shifted a lot in the past few years. Um, I can't tell you the last time I wrote an exhibition review. <laughs> Um, and I'm not super interested in that anymore. Um, my writing has gotten like sort of weird and has started, started to take on some different forms. Um, I think exhibition reviews are boring to me because a lot of the ways you see those written are just like tedious description of what was in the thing or almost it, like it's some um, sort of convoluted press release to like get people to like come see the thing. Um, and to me, that's not super interesting like that's a weird sometimes function of like an art market <laughs> in a way that I'm not interested in um so I love to write about artists and I love to write about art but I am like a doofy romantic that like writes about like how a particular artist or how a body of work makes me feel <laughs> in whatever sort of you know lame way that's possible so um, a lot of times I won't even spend tons of time like being really detailed about a particular work. It's like this artist is doing this thing in like a broader sense that makes me feel really inspired about community and like what artists do and why we're all here and like, do you know what I mean? Like I feel like I write about artists in a way that um, I try to communicate why why art quote-unquote art is is important and what sort of like functional role it has and the way people think and the way people relate to each other and and stuff like that so um I think my curatorial practice is really similar again it's not um I don't make I just explain I don't make exhibitions in a way that I like go to an artist studio and I like pick out specific works that are like sitting there that I can look at and I'm like this is what that's gonna be. Um, I make exhibitions in a way that I have conversations about with artists about what their dreams are around what kind of stuff they would love to be making and what kind of interactions they'd be like they would like to be having with the public and then what sorts of resources would make that possible some iteration of that possible. I've never ever been in a situation where I could just um, offer artists the financial world hopefully that's coming someday mm -hmm. um but yeah I like to listen to um what artists and creatives want to do and want to make and then what sort of iteration of that is possible within like the resources that I have figured out how to go get that's what my curatorial practice is is like resource hunting yeah. <laughs> which is like the least sexy sort of version of what a curator can be or like what people think curators are um but that's really what I think of as my my function in that role yeah. so they're married in that they both are like I don't know probably not what I'm supposed to be doing but <laughs> trying it and seeing if um people will take it so I guess building on that, the way you talk about writing, it sounds like you kind of prioritize, I don't know, like the 
the kind of aftershock or the after effects mm-hmm. of the work rather than the contents itself. Mm-hmm. Do you approach curation that same way? Yeah, I, I wrote this thing that some people were like, uh, it, I wrote this thing for New Archives last year called I Don't Like Art, um, <laughs> which of course is like facetious, like it's being silly, but um, I'm really interested in the before and after more than like, here's the stuff, you know what I mean? Like, I'm really interested in what was going on in a, in a part of an artist's practice, like in the purely like pregnant thinking mode, like thinking about what sorts of things you want to make and to what ends and like imagining and like really taking that time to do thought work about whatever sort of practice you have. And then I'm interested in after. I'm interested in like now I've made this thing, what were like the reverberations of that and like in what ways did that end up being really meaningful and in what ways like was it not meaningful at all? Like that's another thing is I don't need, I don't need everyone to be like, I saw this beautiful, sparkly, like meticulously finished exhibition and it was really beautiful and I'll never think about it again. Like I'm fine with exhibitions sort of being um, living spaces where like in progress things are happening and like things are messy or incomplete and like I'm letting the public into like this moment of my thinking and experimenting and like trying to figure stuff out. Like I think that that's really interesting. I don't not see the appeal of again like a glossy beautiful like whatever exhibition. I I get it. I too like beautiful things. But um, yeah I'm really interested in like the before and after more so than this like mid moment of like I've made the thing it's cute let's see what critics have to say about it like that's less that's less interesting to me when you're talking about like um being in the space and then moving things around and being in progress and like being messy but then like allowing the audience in on that or like having them like view that do you see that as like performance in like a way not by me i think that the artist could say that maybe not by me i never put any sort of like (laughs) creative collaborator stuff on myself like i said i'm i'm a resource hunter i think about um how to um facilitate people making things that really mean something to them to make and that hopefully will mean something to an audience to have seen them make um but yeah i don't know i guess while I don't think of it as performance, like it totally is a thing that I don't know that I've ever made an exhibition that I wasn't moving things around until the last possible moment that the institution was like, stop fucking touching that thing. <laughs> like there are people at the door, like stop. It, it was fine six inches over where it was before. Um, that's a huge part of like my personality, my practices. I'm always like, what if we did this? What if we did this? would a foot that way be better which is not always productive it's annoying and like not not the cutest thing it's probably a little neurotic but um that definitely is a part of how I work and and what that looks like for better or worse do you have any kind of like darlings or favorites that you've kind of curated over the past few years Mm, yeah um, I made an exhibition called If You Have Ghosts for the Alabama Contemporary um, in the very beginning of 2020. Um, 
and it was contemporary um, fiber works. Um, I made that exhibition in Mobile, Alabama in January. I installed it in January, so like right before the world closed. It was the last time I've been on a plane was in January 2020. Um, and it was so dope, not even because of my exhibition, like this is a tangent, but like being in Mobile, Alabama was so cool. And I now I'm like, I wanna make more exhibitions in the South because it was so mm. fantastic and such a wonderful experience. Um, the Alabama Contemporary is just like the most incredible space and they're super hungry, like to bring art there and to bring conversations there in a way that, you know, some people are hesitant, like Mobile, Alabama, like why would I make something there? But it was one of the best experiences I've ever had making an exhibition. Wow. I was there, it was January and they do Mardi Gras in January for whatever reason in, in Mobile. They say they have like one of the original, original Mardi Gras like apart from New Orleans. Um, and it was incredible. I stood outside like all night watching this Mardi Gras parade that was a few blocks from my hotel. I got cold clocked by a baby doll. Because <laughs> they throw stuff. They throw like the beads and the things. And there was this plastic baby doll. And I was like, whoa, like being completely out of control, trying to get all the stuff. They threw this doll and it could not have been a harder plastic. And I got hit right in the face. And I was just like, whoa, like it was worth it. <laughs> so worth it. Um, but it was the most incredible um, experience to be down there, to make an exhibition down there. And I got really lucky um, that the four artists that were in that show were excited about that opportunity to make something with that institution and were open-minded about what that could be and look like. So um, it was really great. It was um, Kate Narker, uh, Jovencio De La Paz, who's here in Oregon with us. Um, Diedrich Brackens, who is in LA, and uh, Marie Watt, who also is here um, with us in Oregon. And it, it was a really beautiful show. So that was exciting to get to do. And it ended up being up for like seven months because oh, wow. the pandemic hit and it wasn't safe to take it down. They're like, we're not going to bring preparators here to like take this stuff down and box it up and do all that because it's not safe. So it was called If You Have Ghosts and it ended up being like this bizarre apocalypse ghost exhibition that like never came down. It's down now, but like it just was perpetually up and that was weird. Yeah. So I'm curious about like, yeah, like that show, for example, like the process, is it like you have um, an idea for like a fiber show and then you like think about these artists you want to work with or you have these artists you want to work with and you're like, oh, they're like, this group of fiber artists, I could make like a fiber show or what? Yeah. yeah. All four of those artists are artists that I know and have been, I've been thinking about their work for a long time um, and had never made anything with any of the four of them before, even though I had been thinking about their work forever. Um, and I think it's really important to say so that people understand like how very close an independent curator's hustle is to an artist's hustle. Um, that was like, an open call that I like wrote an exhibition for and it got accepted. Like, just like artists, independent curators are out here just like a lot of time fruitlessly like applying for whatever and like writing a bunch of proposals and ideas and submitting a bunch of budgets. And then if you get lucky, some institution somewhere will take it. And in 20, 
2019, I got really lucky that Alabama Contemporary liked the idea of a contemporary fiber show and talking about um, how fiber practices have evolved from like a really particular sort of um, like stereotypical kind of craft to, um, you know, artists aren't necessarily making fiber works in that, that same way today. Some of them are, again, like community driven, like quilting practices and things like that. But also what does it look like to have a fiber practice that's like thinking about the internet and that is like not hand done? Like what is it to like weave with machines and like how does the integration of different sorts of technologies around craft like change the way we inherently understand a craft practice? Um, so I got lucky that Alabama Contemporary was into that and, and I got to make it. But um, it was totally like I saw an open call and I applied to it and I got it. Um, it's always a bit awkward telling artists like, hey, can I use your name or your practice um, for a proposal? It may or may not get accepted, but I don't want it. In the off chance it does get accepted, I don't want to be like, congratulations, you're in a show that you know nothing about. <laughs> so um, that's a little bit of a dance that gets a little awkward and strange. But um, yeah, for artists whose work I've been thinking about in various ways for a long time, and I had never worked with any of them. Uh, Jovencio was in in the biennial, so I had worked with Jovencio mm. in that way. Um, but yeah, I had never really worked with at least three of them in that way, um, but was very familiar with their practices. I had like a years long relationship with all of them and um, got lucky that I got to make that one. So, so when you, when you write these proposals, um, when you kind of get an idea for an exhibition that you want to, to kind of helm or curate, like where does the inspiration come from? Is it like current conversations that are happening about like the arts or like, yeah, where, where, where are you sourcing these kind of ideas? Yeah. Um, it's always born from like an artist practice that I'm looking at. Some people do it the opposite way. Like I have an idea for a show. Now I need to go looking for artists that like fit within that concept. Um, I do it the opposite way because I think it's easier. <laughs> I just think it's easier to like um, have relationships with, with artists or like have sort of like a mental uh, folder of like, this is who's doing things that I think are, are interesting. And when I get the opportunity, I'm going to make something with them because I like the kind of thinker that they are. Um, and that makes it a really slow burn. Like I feel like I do studio visits and then artists are like, I did a studio visit with that heifer last year and she has not called me or followed up once, but it's just because it's such a slow burn. Like I could have been excited as hell about like the time we spent together and what we talked about, but um, I have to go hunt down now the resources and opportunity to like help you make that thing. Um, and that may take time to happen. Um, again, I write lots of proposals that like literally go nowhere. Like I can imagine these jurors reading these things being like, LOL. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a slow, slow burn, but I always like, I definitely have like a whole infrastructure on my Google cloud of like artists I would love to make something with someday, like things that I've seen that are really interesting that I want to dig into further. And then like 
once I've done enough of those kind of visits, like I start to be able to draw lines between like these two or three artists would have like a really dope conversation together. So if I can ever figure that out, maybe that's an exhibition. And um, that's the way I do it. But like I said, every curator is different and lots of curators um, start with an idea for a conversation they think needs to be had. And then they go out looking for, for artists that like fit within that or would be willing to try and wedge themselves into whatever that is. <laughs> I'm interested. I'm interested. Um, or can you also pull your microphone closer to the edge of the table? So it'll be closer to you. Yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in um, this idea of like ideas like forming over time and like over years and this like a slow burn. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, interested in like um, that in, in terms of like thinking about artists and then thinking about like connections with artists. But then to what you were saying earlier about like how um, you're, you write about art more currently about like these feelings and this before and after. Um, curious if those like ideas or the ways you think about art like before you write about it, if those have also been like slow burns maybe like years in development for some of those pieces um so that's like the first part and then the second part sorry is also um this I, this idea too of like keeping but organizing notes and ideas and then do you ever feel like overwhelmed and then have to like reorganize or is like your notes just in a constant process of reorganizing or yeah organized is strong if i said organized i was flattering myself organized is very strong basically i have like an in process i'm thinking like junk folder on my google drive that would never ever make sense to anyone but me like i don't know if either of y'all are that kind of note taker that's like someone in class is like can i borrow your notes and then you slide them over and they're like what the (laughs) like what does this say this is like stick figure drawings and like arrows and like stuff um so i'm definitely that kind of thinker and note taker it makes perfect sense to me like in my brain i have like some weird kind of code that i'm like organizing things within but if anyone else ever took a trip into my drive they would i don't know what they would they would think they would recommend i get some sort of help um (laughs) but it's um yeah it's really messy in the way that i like try to make these lines and connections this is gonna sound hokey as hell but i also am someone that like i think in my sleep which means i'm not really asleep right like (laughs) if you're thinking you're like totally not asleep um but i get the best ideas some people are like i get the best ideas like in on the toilet or in the shower or whatever Mm -hmm. i get um, great ideas when i'm quote unquote asleep like, I'm someone that, like, pops up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, yes. So, like, legit in the middle of REM. Yeah. Wow. I mean, again, I'm probably not asleep. <laughs> I'm, like, laying there with my eyes closed telling myself that I'm asleep, and I'm absolutely not. Um, but I think it's just something about, like, I'm in the bed, so I have, like, this is a moment where I have committed to, like, not working on anything, and I have, like, given my brain space to just, like, do whatever it's gonna do in like a non-task oriented way Mm -hmm. and so i think like being in the bed is like really fruitful for me and maybe i'm making excuses astrology signs like i feel like taurus is just always in the bed (laughs) and that's very real 
for me, like that's my safe space, my thinking space. I'm in the bed, nobody talk to me. <laughs> and then I tend to like do some of my best thinking in that sort of like sedative moment. Um, but yeah, that whole thing is very messy. And then to your question about um, writing and if I ever have like a slow burn with writing, no, and I wish. I wish I did more writing just to write. I feel like in the past few years, I have not done that or like had that luxury. At this point, to be real, the things that I'm writing are because someone has asked me to write it. <laughs> and then like, I find a way to write it in my own way and write it in a way that's interesting to me. But um, to be real, I'm writing it because someone has been like, will you write this? Um, I'm going to try to get into a better habit of like writing just to write and writing because I'm thinking about something. 2020 would have been a great year to do that. And then like, of course, no. But trauma. Yeah. All those memes that are like, <laughs> you said you were going to paint during the pandemic or like you said you were going to whatever. Um, that was me. I like took up so many unproductive things instead <laughs> of like taking up like time to perfect my craft or whatever no I was like trying to learn how to play guitar hero and like <laughs> I'm still so angry that I'm bad at it I don't know why I assumed this but I thought I was gonna be good at it <laughs> and I'm not and it was crushing and so then it was like anger playing like why am I bad at this like I had just built so much up in my mind about being great at guitar hero and then it like didn't happen so I spent a lot of the pandemic trying to figure out why that is but no definitely no like beautifully productive writing or exhibition planning or like making deep connections with artists it was like me and free bird battling it out. <laughs> that sounds pretty productive to me but i mean if i had gotten good okay well there's but is is it about getting good really thank you for saying that thank you for saying that that makes me feel better i don't are you someone that can just like sit in not being good at stuff like are you totally chill with like i did that and it was horrible yeah i think i can what i can give the appearance that i'm not bothered <laughs> <laughs> so i could learn from i each of you then. <laughs> I can't play a musical instrument to save my life, but I have taken classes for at least four of them. Yeah. So. yeah there you go. I, I try to be a, a good loser, so I try to be like, all right, gracious. That's loser. very sweet. I've seen you trying to be gracious, though. I have the veneer of graciousness until someone says something to me. And then we have a problem. Or, like, if I hear someone, like, starting to laugh, then I'm like, what'd you say? Like, it turns into, like, that whole thing. The veneer is very thin for me. Mm. But yeah, no, musical instruments, not my thing. My parents have this incredible VHS tape of a piano recital when I must have been like 10. I had to play We Three Kings for my recital. And this is like my whole personality in a nutshell. I started over four times <laughs> four times i got like a few bars into the song and like felt like i hadn't done it right and so i was like bah! and i like started over four times and eventually you see my dad just like put the camcorder 
What other hobbies have you taken up during the pandemonium? I've always wanted to be good with plants. That has oh. not happened. Like, I just don't. I think I care too much. Maybe oh. that's the problem. Like, overwatered, over, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. death by wanting to be a mother so bad. <laughs> so I've tried to do, like, I've tried to make my backyard really cute and do some plant stuff. That didn't really happen. Um, Guitar Hero didn't really happen. I tried to run. That's never <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> never. That was another thing. Like, I got in this, like, athleisure mode where I was, like, buying, like, <laughs> jammies and sweatsuits and things and then I was like now that I have the fit I gotta hit the street and like run and sweat and stuff and it just doesn't well wait I think that depends like are you running a good trail because I think the well there are two like secrets to enjoying running you have to have a good playlist Mm -hmm. and then you have to actually be interested in your surroundings okay well the second was a huge fail (laughs) the second was like a horrible fail maybe that's the thing I yep. need to find, like, an enjoyable landscape. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No exercise happened. Oh. I also had this moment where I was like, I'm going to find, like, some sort of, like, thing that I can, like, pull up on YouTube and do, like, a, a workout video. <laughs> and it just, it, it only takes them being like, now go get your weights or stretchy band <laughs> or, like, something that I totally don't own before I'm just, like... Man, F this person. <laughs> yeah, none of that happened. What about you? What about either of you? Any new hobbies? Um, new hobbies. Um, maybe new bad habits. Such as? <laughs> I don't know. Nothing specific. Um, new hobbies. Um, what do I do now that I used to not do? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, you took the time to just sort of sit in it, and that's, I have nothing but respect for that. Yeah. Um, you used to do track, right? You used to do cross country. Um, I did running. Running. I yeah. trained for like a marathon in my 30s. Just you did a run. marathon? Well, half marathon. That's still <laughs> impressive. I did like a half block and was like, that's good. <laughs> like if, so, if one person saw me, that's good. I've done no exercise during the Pandora. Like, I've talked about finding a YouTube channel that yeah. does yoga. See? I've been doing that for eight months. That seems... <laughs> also, though, that's harder than it seems because I did that very same thing. There are so many. It just, like, really quickly gets overwhelming, and then I just was like... I just spent three hours not doing a single stretch, but, like, Googling all these people to see, like, who's an idiot and who's, like, an actual yoga practitioner. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. I was also wondering if in your, like, um, plant endeavors did, like, one of your strategies, did you talk to your plants? Mm. Um, In, like, a frustrated way, which is probably not the way. It was a lot of, like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) <laughs> Which is probably not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Do you talk to your plants? Is that like, do you like sing to it or like? I don't. To I don't nice sing to, to my plants. Like maybe they hear me singing sometimes. Um, but uh, sometimes, like on my bigger plants, I guess on most of them, um, when I dust them, I'll like talk to them. Wait, dust them? What are you talking yeah, like, about? You know, wipe the dust off their leaves. That's, That's a thing. <laughs> what? 
I did that, but that probably goes along with like the overwatering thing. I would get like a wet paper towel and like, come on, honey, little honey, wow. grow. It doesn't work. Don't okay. waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> this is not like tips for like how to successfully raise a thing because I definitely didn't. Then I feel like this is related. Um, you mentioned that you're a Taurus, but I'm curious about mm-hmm. your other placements. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Ugh. For my birthday last year, I got my first ever reading, like someone explaining my chart to me in depth. And they literally were like, if your cancer wasn't in Venus, you would be a murderer. (laughs) I just have so much like, ah, like energy in my chart. It was like, thank God you have this one like soft thing. Cause it could go either way really quick. Um, I'm a Taurus sun. Um, a Libra ascendant and a Gemini moon, which is just like constant crying. <laughs> Mostly is what that means. What about the two of you? Did any either of you have any of that? Um, I always have trouble remembering what I am. All I know is that I'm a Virgo, even though I thought I was a Libra, Ooh. with a lot of Libra placements. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. You have no feelings about this. You're just like, that's fine. It's weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes sense in a lot of ways. I have a lot of love for both Virgos and Libras. I think neither of those is a bad bad thing. What about you, Max? Um, I'm a Pisces sun. I'm a uh, (laughs) Scorpio rising um, and a Sagittarius moon. There you go. Also all good things. Very stable sounding charts as opposed to mine that's just like <laughs> on the verge of tears in every moment. <laughs> or eating. Oh. Eating while crying is like peak. <laughs> that's a torso. Peak me. <laughs> yeah, eating just makes me happy. So. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to. Yeah, no. I don't need to like. I wish that worked on me. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, I'm feeling a feeling and it needs a chip. Oh. Okay. And it it just doesn't, I mean, does it stop the feeling? It blunts it. (laughs) Depends what kind of chip. Mm. What's your favorite chip? Mm, Man, I have some controversial answers. (laughs) Um, People don't like sun chips, but there's like a like a sort of garden salsa flavor sun chip that's so good. Yeah. So good. People hate on sun chips, and I don't know what that is. I didn't know that. I didn't know people hated on sun chips. I've oh, always huh? heard that um, sun chips make your hair grow faster. What? What? <laughs> I also have never heard that. <laughs> Maybe time to take a look at that ingredients yeah. list a little closer than I ever have. What other kinds of chips? I also think maybe it's not even about chips. Maybe it's just about, like, crunchy stuff. Mm. Like, I love pickled anything. Oh. Anything. Okay. If I don't like... (laughs) You hate that. I hate pickles. Stop. (laughs) I do. Like, you hate just, like, cucumber pickles or, like, pickling as a process. You're Just everything about it. Stop. From the flavor to the texture to any sort of iteration Stop. of pickle. Stop. What if it's like a Trojan horse pickle? Like what if it's something pickled on like a taco? 
Like, here's your favorite taco. Why would taco. there be a pickle on a taco? There's always pickles on tacos. Like, um, like a pickled onion or something as like part of the slaw on your taco. Would sounds, you do that? Sounds like a scam. No. Come yeah. on, dude. <laughs> if I don't like a vegetable, pickle it, and then I'm like, fine. <laughs> I'll eat it. Fine. That's the trick. It's like when a child doesn't like something and you just like put ketchup on it or something. Mm-hmm. For me, it's if, I, if I'm not into it, pickle it, and then suddenly I'm like, we can do this. Wow. Do you like other, like pickled fish and stuff like that? Oh, no. No, no. I'm, I'm firmly in pickled vegetables, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Pickled fi- Oh, yeah, like pickled herring and things like that. I don't know that I've ever gone down that road, but when I do, I'll let you know. <laughs> All right, cool. Are you also anti-pickle? I wouldn't say I'm as firm as Melanie is, but I'm pretty not into pickles. Like, I'll take a bite out of, like, a pickle spear every now mm-hmm. and then and eat a pickle slice here and there. This extends all the but, way to, like, you don't like cucumber pickles. Um, I don't like, I like those every now and then, but, like, I don't need them. Like, my life never misses them. But there are a few other pickle things that I do engage in. Oh um, if they're, like, in part of dishes, like, I will eat pickled. Yeah. Um, radish or carrot or yeah whatever see that's the spot there's but, also um, like pickled eggs i don't know if i've had one but i don't know if i would i'll do it again to use your words i don't they're not like there's not like a hole in my heart for like pickled eggs but i'll do it yeah mm. i feel like i'm alienating myself from this table right now i feel no, like things are going well and then <laughs> i know that's how i feel <laughs> I feel like for a brief shining moment I had you, and then I was like, I like pickles. <laughs> Dang. I'll get you back. Let's see what else we get. We're controversial. So. <laughs> so, you know, you've, you've kind of traversed the landscape of the arts, both in Portland and on the West Coast and, you know, in different regions. Um, given everything that's kind of gone down in the last 14 months, like where do you see the trajectory of the arts world um, within the next 10 to 15 years, especially given like the conversations that are coming up now? Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> that's really, I don't know. I wish I knew. Um, I think it's a, I think no one knows and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Like I would actually say for the first time in a very long time, no one knows. Like, the art world was kind of, like, on this thing where there's, like, you know, this, that, and the other biennial every couple, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. there's Documenta and Freeze and this and that and the other thing. And, like, there had gone to be, like, a sort of formulaic appreciation for, like, all parts of it. Like, what's going on? What parts of the year? What can you expect? Oh, it's the fall. Here's all the, like, blockbuster exhibitions from institutions. Um... And then also in terms of like what kind of artists you can expect to see exhibitions from, that also has gotten really formulaic depending on like, I mean, I don't know. Again, that's another thing that I would say, at least this doesn't apply to Portland so much, but in other places it's really sort of art market mm. driven mm. and like acquis- museum acquisitions <laughs> driven and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and all of that just got, like, obliterated this year. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was not business as usual in terms of what institutions could do. 
on what sorts of timelines, what institutions could buy. Um, also, it was not formulaic in terms of what publics and communities that museums purport to serve were asking for. I feel like this was a year where everyone was like, stop the bullshit. Like, you've got all mm -hmm. this lofty rhetoric about, like, what a public-facing, like, community-centered sort of institution does. You know what I mean? Like, not that every arts institution considers themselves that, but, like, I feel like every... Like, we see arts institutions have, like, um, these really convoluted mission statements about, like, the ways that they interact with community and then, like, doing land acknowledgments and, like, again, like, having just these really, really lofty thoughts and statements about, like, their value in the community and their goals and the way that they treat people. And then the pandemic happened and then it was just, like, like yeah. none of that <laughs> was possible, like, before even thinking to like potentially sell off some assets, they laid off people. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So there's just so much that has been like laid naked about arts institutions. And I think that we're getting real calls for like accountability and the ways that arts institutions function and engage with publics that I hope turns turns into something mm -hmm. um we've seen some institutions try and like figure that out on the fly with mixed results yeah mostly with like that's not really what we had in mind and not really what the community needed but thanks for trying <laughs> um so yeah i think for the first time in a long time i have no idea i don't think anyone has any idea and it's gonna just be like the wild west here for the next year or two trying to like put the pieces back together hopefully in new in new ways um that really honor what a lot of us like hope arts institutions are or how they can function and, and serve the people that um that believe in them and donate to them and attend shows and yeah well we'll see that's a horrible answer but like literally i don't know I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to another conversation that kind of popped up adjacent to the state of arts institutions. Um, this kind of idea of public facing um, inclusion versus like not so public, and, mm -hmm. like the front of the house versus the back of the house and like diversity, um, you know, across the board in all aspects of like, in all facets of the institution. And as someone in arts administration, who has kind of been in it for a minute. Do, do you see the landscape chasing, um, changing in that regard? In some sense. So the one thing that I just like is never gonna happen is um, people stepping down from their jobs. Never gonna happen? <laughs> never I gonna happen. I think that the institutions are gonna push harder from donor classes to find the money to hire more staff but you're not gonna see like a white chief curator at the Brooklyn Museum or wherever stepping down in favor of like leadership of color. I, I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Um, mm -hmm. The arts world in terms of like full-time salaried opportunities is just like, there's so much competition. Like you work your whole life to get a job like that. And then when you get it, someone's gotta knife you for it. Like you're not going 
anywhere. Um, and so we have seen some like little instances of that. Um, Dina Beard at the lab, the lab is a experimental sort of performance space in the mission in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Dina Beard, um, took over the lab about a decade ago in a moment where it was in sort of like not great financial straits and like they just really need a leadership that was going to come in and figure that out and Dina was like I'm going to come in and figure this out with like the timeline that like in 10 years or however long I'm going to step down in favor of leadership that like reflects this community so I'm going to be here to get this as like a functioning institution that can stand on its own two feet financially and then I'm going to kind of give it back to the neighborhood so like it's not unheard of. Like, there are some really, really special people out there that are having those conversations and thinking in those ways. But, like, yeah, in terms of, like, a lot of the museums that have been in the news for, like, you made this, like, really, like, skeevily horrible exhibition that was purporting to have a conversation about race. And, like, it's not, it's bad because you have literally no staff of color that, like, helped conceptualize or or do this um so I think like because of that sort of press and revealing journalism about those kinds of things I think that um you know you'll start seeing like endowed positions of like we're hiring like a Mm. chief diversity officer or like (laughs) we're like you know what I mean like where is that person's job and they have to Okay, that'll be great for them, I'm sure. Yeah, really, really great. (laughs) I think we'll start seeing, like, institutions being like, we're going to find the money to, like, bring in some black and brown staff. But what you won't see are any white leadership relinquishing their role so that that's possible. Hopefully I'm wrong. Waiting to see it, though. So do you think, like, it, within that, like, train of thought that it, it would still be, like, when whatever, like, said white leadership, like, retires, that then they would be replaced by, like, a person of color or um, somebody else? That would that, be cool. That would be nice. That still seems unlikely as well. Uh, I don't think that, I mean, that's less unlikely. Again, I think that what I'm trying to say you're not going to see is someone being, like, whoa, I'm chief curator or, like, director of this institution. I'm looking around and seeing that my staff is, like, intensely homogenous. I'm going to resign. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Um, I don't think we're there yet in terms of thinking around, like, reparations. And what Melanie is talking about is, like, yeah, in that front of the house, back of the house conversation, like, what a lot of institutions need is, like, some really truly valuable like a leadership of color not just like the janitor is black you know what I mean like we we list our staff on our website and like the people in like the least influential positions are black and brown so it's like yes you have some of that on your staff but not in like a position that they really can do or lead or change anything um so we'll see. I hope that we see a turnaround in like some inventive thinking about how to make leadership increasingly possible. Um, hopefully we also see some like new institutions in a moment where lots of institutions are shuttering. Like it would also just be cool for someone to like put their resources where their mouth is to like birth some new stuff. The- I mean, I, I, I do find that 
potentially interesting. Like we see kind of this cropping up of indie gallery spaces mm-hmm. or unconventional gallery spaces right now during this time of COVID. Um, it would be interesting to see what these kinds of spaces can do given the right kind of resources mm-hmm. and funding. Totally. Those galleries are not going anywhere. Like scrappy artist run whatevers have been around since the beginning of time and they're like mm-hmm. a really important part of the arts ecosystem. Like they're where the experimentation is happening and like where you can do so many things that like are not possible at like whatever city arts museum in the same way. So um, that's one thing particularly important. We're, we're in a dangerous place of Mm. Um, some of those like mid-tier institutions that were like I say mid-tier in that um, they're not quite these like artists run or emerging spaces that have no resources but they're also not the Portland Art Museum you know what I mean like they exist in this like beautiful middle space where like they do have some real funding to make things possible again not like millions of dollars like a museum but like they have some like some amount of funding where where things are possible but because they don't have the stakes of whatever museum they can work with early career artists and they can do experimental things that are like sort of weird and not all the way figured out and that they don't have to worry about ticket sales about and um i feel like in portland we're like losing that like i think university gallery spaces a lot of times were that and we have like fewer of those by the second um I think, yeah, as much as I hate to shout this out, I think that Yale Union was kind of that. Um, they had a lot of money, but they did experimental things with it. Like, they weren't all that concerned with, like, being a capital M museum in that way that was interesting. Um, the art gym, toot toot, for two seconds was trying to do that. Yeah. Um, it's a good two seconds, though. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah thanks um yeah we're just like we're we're losing it a little bit i mean we're sitting in pica right now which i think is like the big mama of spaces that are trying to do that and be that so we're really lucky that pica is still like allowed to do what it does and you know is however funded they are um mm-hmm. so Yeah, we got this, but um, most of those spaces have just, like, disappeared big time in the past five years, and I'm worried about Portland for that reason. Um, One thing that that absence, I hope, has created is a little bit more funding flowing, like, all the way down to the um, artist-run spaces. Like, I hope that they're all securing the bag in a way um, from, you know, regional funding that... um, has less things to try and fund now. Um, Regional funding has done a really good job this year, I will say, of Mm. pivoting to like emergency relief money. Um, That's been like a bright spot is seeing like that really quick about face into like how can this money be the most useful in this moment and like maybe that's not exhibitions and public programs. Like maybe that's just people are suffering and there's this pile of money here that's not going to be used for public facing stuff. So that's been really cool. And I hope to see regional funding continue to like sort of grow and stretch in its capacity to fund um, sort of out of the box things. Yeah. 
that would be really interesting. They, they, I think regional funding has been extremely responsive um, in a very impressive way, and I hope they would continue to, to be so and kind of adapt and change to whatever happens within the next six to 12 months. Because yeah. It's still all very much up in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, still going off with thinking about, like, art futures, um, I have kind of, like, a multi, multi-pronged question. Um, this idea of these, like, next year, next few years being, like, a Wild West where things could, like, potentially end up, like, settling differently or maybe, like, going back to normal or, like, going back to, like, how they were previously. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, like... Um, yeah, if that is, like, even a potential that, like, maybe there'll be, like, a few years of difference, and then, like, five years from now, it'll just be business as usual, like, the way it was, like, prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm also thinking, well, yeah, when I'm also thinking about, like, our futures, I'm also curious about what you think about um, NFTs. Mm. <laughs> and then um, this one is a little, maybe, I don't know how much, I feel like the, the first two questions were, like, near future, but this one I could potentially be in near future Mm -hmm. but i'm also thinking about like art and like art institutions and art spaces and like everything like we all do as like the different like functions in the art world um how that exists as like the world seemingly will like be enduring more and more like frequent like crises and like upheavals (laughs) and instability I love an apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> like, are we, like, curating during, like, Parable of the Sower? That's happening. Or... I, I'm not joking. I love an apocalypse conversation. You talked about Mortal Kombat earlier. Yeah. You said you just watched it. I also watched it, and I have been, like, waiting for silent moments when my husband is, like, working to be like, I've risen from hell to kill you. <laughs> I love those conversations. So, um, in terms of... Um, like whether things are going to settle differently or kind of, you know, we're going to have like a brief reprieve of like where people are engaged and that it's going to go back to normal. I think that depends on us and like what we're willing to settle for. You know what I mean? Like we've turned the heat on. If we keep it on, I think we can get some stuff out Mm -hmm. of it. Um, But yeah, if people go, if folks go back to, you know, really feeling like, they want business as usual, which I think is a thing, unfortunately. Like, I think business as usual is, like, fine by a lot of folks and comforting to a lot of folks. So um, I think it just depends, like, if we keep our feet on the gas or not. Um, And I don't know. Like, lots of people have, like, change fatigue. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like... Who knows what's what's going to happen? I think there's enormous potential for either thing, and it just depends on like what sort of energy we put into it. Um, I've done <laughs> this NFTs question is going to kill me. Um, you know, I have done most of my reading about NFTs in relationship to memes more than art. Um, do you know that Disaster Girl meme? Yeah. Yes, I just heard about yes, that. The house is on fire, and it's like a four-year-old little girl looking back at the camera, like as though she burned <laughs> it down, which right. is really amazing. Um, yeah, that uh, they just made that meme an NFT, and she got like a half million dollars for that. It's an image of her when she was that was made when she was four, and she's had no 
it's been everywhere. Like, she's had no control over that meme for, like, 17 years or something crazy. And so, um, I'm kind of feeling like NFTs are going to be, like, one of the very many art world, this is why we can't have nice things conversations. (laughs) Um, I think it was born out of something, you know, sort of brilliant and valuable and like letting people perpetually maintain copyright on digital images is like really important. Letting people monetize those um, digital images or or works, um, especially in the case of like memes, like we were just talking about, like it's literally this person's image. Um, And so allowing her to sort of monetize or not monetize that in whatever way I think is important and valuable and like one of the ways that like the world is catching up to the internet (laughs) like we like invented the internet with like no rules and then we were like wait maybe we need some rules so i think nfts serve that function and again are like beautiful and valuable in a lot of ways um and sort of correcting the ship in some of the ways that the internet has like gone off course in in instances that are inequitable or whatever else but also like there's no question some people are going to start doing stupid shit with nfts i think i read a thing that was like someone bought the nft of like a physical thing and then destroyed the physical thing so like wasn't there a thing with basquiat's work yes was that what it was yes which is just like i don't have time for that like that's really yeah this is why we can't have nice things. Unquestionably, there's going to be some deeply stupid shit that goes on with NFTs. But um, I think it was born of a nice place, and we'll we'll see what goes on with it as people think of new and insane ways to work with them and monetize their practices with them. Was there another question in there? Um, how do you see like art, art institutions, art workers? Um, existing going forward as the world um, endures more and more like crises, mm. disasters. Yeah, apocalypse. Um, I think apocalypse, yeah. I'm hoping we're going to see like some other kinds of institutions. Like I'm hoping that um, we're going to see some other kinds of institutions that like, I don't know. I have like a lot of shit to say about museums and like, you know, being sort of mausoleums or like dead spaces. Like, museums do objects pretty well and like nothing else (laughs) do you know what i mean like they they're not great with like being living breathing responsive spaces to like communities and certain conversations and like action-based practice-based things museums are not good in that way um they've thought all the way around how to like show and share objects um but yeah they're they can be sort of dead spaces in that way that's frustrating um and so i would like to see some new sorts of institutions born that like exist somewhere between like a museum and a community center like what would it look like for those two things to have a baby um i think of artists in residence programs a lot in that way like what's the best of like we're making and thinking about and looking at art, but in a way that's like alive and process based and that like communities can find their ways into. I think the best of residency programs do that really well. Again, I'm thinking of like a project row houses or something. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So like, 
I'm looking forward to seeing like if we can birth something new. Like we're sitting in this moment of apocalypse where we're like, the shit we built isn't working. Maybe it's not super fruitful to like endlessly try and revise that thing so much as just to like build a new thing. And I hope that there's opportunity to build some new things. I'm thinking about that article, I don't know if you read it, that came out, Vanity Fair, Kimberly Drew edited it. Mm, I haven't read it. What Should a Museum Look Like in 2020? Mm. And it was just um, a bunch of like arts admins and artists, um, curators, writers, critics, um, mostly black, talking about the state of museums and galleries and institutions and what needs to be done. And it was done in August of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it closed with one of the... Um, people saying that museums just need to be abolished yeah <laughs> wow yeah i'm not gonna go all the way there because i like i as much as i like, hate to admit it there's like a mood or like a moment where i like a museum mm -hmm. but again like i think that they do one thing really well and a bunch of other things like not so well do you know what i mean like i can appreciate museums for what they do i can appreciate museums for being like a sort of hyper linear space of like here's a bunch of things on a timeline and we're going to be like hyper prescriptive about like the facts of the thing you know what i mean like there's like i don't know like a sort of like second grade school field trip way in which i think museums function just fine um but i think especially in like a moment of contemporary art and we're thinking about the myriad of things that that can be and do and look like which aren't always object-based or like finished project-based and our you know contemporary art can be relational in a bunch of ways and like alive and like time-based and perpetually happening and perpetually being revised and like rhizomatic and all these really beautiful ways museums don't do that well um so I'm not all the way in the camp of, like, abolish museums, but I am very much in the camp of, like, put the museum in the corner and we're doing something else over here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or are y'all burning it down? Abolish museum t-shirts for the other half of the table? Uh, no, I agree with you. I think that museums have a function. Um, I think of it very much as, like, I don't know, like a, a bridge or a gateway drug to truly understanding <laughs> art. Yeah. It's an invitation to, to kind of like look elsewhere, look yeah. deeper. Um, that's important. My problem with the museum is the way that it positions itself within the mm -hmm. community as like um, kind of a cultural authority. Mm -hmm. That's the issue. If there yeah. were a little more transparency around that, I think I would be... I would feel more comfortable with museums as a space. Totally. Like, in what instances does everyone just need to be like, girl, shut up? <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Exactly. Like, I think that's, like, a thing. Like, that's the energy we need to keep in 2021, 2022. Yeah. Is, like, keeping museums positioned in, like, a hyper-particular space where it's, like, you're doing what you do over here and, like, maybe you're not the best-positioned space or form to do the things that we're talking about. Yeah. I'm interested in this um, idea you mentioned of like the museum meets like the community center. Mm -hmm. And then I've been thinking about that. And then to me, it's like the museum meets the community center. It's the community center 
but just like with a lot of funding mm-hmm. or like a lot of money mm-hmm. and then you know like just like showing or exhibiting whatever art was like made within like that community mm-hmm. um and then from like you know a wide range of um you know people from like kids to like adults or whatever mm-hmm. and just like really well lit like macaroni art <laughs> <laughs> yeah People don't like that so much, though. Like, I would love if people liked that more than they do. Uh, but I've dipped my toe in a little bit of, like, what if? Like, the biennial had, like, kid stuff, and people were like, stop. <laughs> like, I waited three years for this biennial for you to let children tell me what's going on here. So, like, not the home run. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sorry that I did it. There, you know, I think about it constantly and I think about ways that, like, different things that I would do differently, um, ways in which, you know, moments of failure within various things that we tried to do in the biennial. Mm-hmm. Um, but another lesson that I learned, apart from just, like, where I went wrong, is also that, like, some people just straight up don't want that. You know what I mean? Like, some people want to see beautiful things and they want me to straightforwardly tell them when where and how it was made and by who and you know they want the experience of being able to walk look at something for you know 30 seconds say that's really beautiful and move on like we all have like lofty ideas about like imagining otherwise but like a, a decent number of people like they like it the way it is. They don't want to imagine otherwise. And so I also am like having to, I think that's a valuable lesson and something that I'm going to carry forward. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I would be really excited to see what community centers did if they had like a lot of money. I'm I'm interested in, um, also in this idea that, uh, or you talking about like um, how you like worked with kids like not landing for the Portland Biennial, mm-hmm. um, and then yeah maybe you thinking that like that was like a failure or mm-hmm. like you got like negative feedback from that, and then wondering if um, that is also something that could change. Maybe in a couple of years you're like actually that was a brilliant mm-hmm. idea, or mm-hmm. like the idea that even how you feel about a particular like aspect of what you do is still mutable yeah. or changing. Yeah. Um, no one's going to get me to apologize for the idea of that. I feel like I do have, you know, there are moments where I'm just like, shit, I like functionally, logistically to go back in my time machine would like execute that a little bit differently, but no one's going to get me to apologize for the idea of it. Like we talk about something, um, Yael and Ella Shiba and I talked a lot about or like, who who is art for and like who's involved in the processes who has access and who doesn't whose voices make their way into these spaces and whose don't like what are some ways that we can talk about like equity and like yeah decolonial praxis within the making of something as absurd as a biennial like, they could not, I make this joke all the time, but they could not have picked three people who are less interested in biennials <laughs> to curate a biennial. Um, I'm not sure if they knew what they were doing when they did that. Maybe they did. I will have to just, like, ask, distract us some way um, at some point. But, um, yeah, they picked three 
curators who are like deeply skeptical of biennials as a thing and like what sort of value that has and especially a regional biennial has particular stakes in like purporting to be like of a land and of a community and so like if that's what we're doing like what does that need to look like and what who needs to be involved in like the making of the thing um so we did a lot of stuff that's like not how biennials are made we were just like again like we didn't we didn't choose artworks we hadn't seen a solid three-fourths of those things before they arrived to be installed <laughs> um we were like hey how much money do we have and they told us and then we were like we're gonna um you know sort of divvy this up amongst these 18 artists to sort of make what they would want to make for the occasion of a biennial and have a conversation that they would want to have within the frame of like a regional conversation of what it is to be a maker in Oregon, which is what the thing purports to be about, right? Like we didn't invent that. That's what a regional biennial is or like the stakes of it. So we thought some people would disagree with that. Like lots of people, we got one like nasty review. Um, that was someone that was frustrated that they like wanted to come see like the beautiful, shiny, creme de la creme artists of Oregon that either have or have the potential to have like a national profile in what they're doing and like blah, blah, blah. That is not at all what we were interested in. Like we made a meticulous effort to like include people that had never been in one because mm -hmm. that was something else that we noticed is that you see some of the same characters in it every year and we were just like, that's because they're like the famous mid-career artists in Oregon that like get all the same like mid-career funding, mid-career opportunities, solos at the museum or whatever. And so we were really interested in explicitly not doing that. Um, we weren't interested in anyone's sort of pedigree. Although there were people in the exhibition that like have long exhibition histories and like have been appreciated already and whatever. Um, we didn't like discover everyone in the show i'm not saying that but um yeah we like we're like how much money do we have and then we sort of turned artists loose to like make whatever they wanted to make with that kind of funding we didn't see a lot of the work before it arrived to be installed um we had a lot of like what do you need conversations along the way but like not like what are you making and do we like it or not like it? Like we sort of trusted the artists to, I mean, we selected the artists and like these are thinkers that we respect. And so ultimately we're going to trust whatever they, they do. Um, so we try not to be prescriptive and we try not to be like overtly hierarchical. And then we were like, you know, we had a whole conversation about like wall tags and wall didactics. And like, I'm someone that just hates, wall didactics I think it's cool to like have something at the front desk if someone wants more information they can go to the front desk and like get the thing and flip through it and like find out what they want to know I personally don't need that on the wall next to the thing as I'm trying to have an experience with the thing mm -hmm. um, and so we all had like we had a conversation about our feelings on like exhibition didactics and wall text and like all those things and then ultimately we were like what if kids wrote <laughs> <laughs> like what if i mean we worked with um the tubman school right. for curatorial practice um which is seventh 
a, a team of seventh graders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, King School and Tubman School were sort of at least a little tiny bit born of, like, um, just, like, the realization that, like, arts programs are going away in, like, elementary and middle school and stuff. And, like, that's such a cool formative time to, like, be introduced to art. And, like, it's slowly going away that um, folks of that age are given that sort of access and experience. So we were like, what if we did that as part of the biennial? And that was Lisa Jarrett's project for the biennial. Mm -hmm. We talked to Lisa about what she thought she wanted to do. She was like, I want to involve my students and so we thought about what that could be and we were like they can do studio visits with us they can hang around during install they can be involved in the catalog and hey what if they wrote the wall didactics like based on this experience that they just had spending time with artists and looking at art because that's also the way that we would write them right and so we were like what if we just turn this role over to seventh graders and we did and it got extraordinarily mixed reviews. Um, again, no one's going to get me to apologize for the idea of it. I think there are a few to go back. There are some ways that I would execute it differently. Um, I mostly have regret for the artists who were upset about what the children wrote about their work. Um, it's a tricky thing because being a curator is this like, uh, mediator position in, in some sense between artists and publics. Like we help artists um, sort of congeal what they're doing for public consumption. So we have like a, I think of myself as having a dual responsibility to both of those sides of the teeter-totter. Right. And so I think that we're, um, in how that effort was born, I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about the audience and the public in the community and the ways that they would be involved. Um, and I sort of didn't um, dig in enough in terms of my responsibilities to the artists and like presenting their work. And there totally were artists who were like, I get that they're kids, but they just represented my work in a way that I like don't, that's not what I feel like I'm doing, but they just told the entire biennial audience that that's what I'm doing. And I get that they're kids, but that's, frustrating and that doesn't feel good to my practice and so I have some um I have some regret around that and I have a lot of like yeah how would I do that differently and I think that I'm just a person that's going to be thinking about that exhibition for literally the rest of my life and like every single moment that I would have done something differently but um yeah I don't apologize for the idea of it I think it was dope that we tried it um, I don't know that I'll ever try it again, but if I do, um, I've got some uh, life lessons in my back pocket now about the ways that that probably needs to be handled functionally. Yeah. Um, yeah, to kind of like go on with this a little bit, because I feel like this is a lot of stuff that I've been like thinking about recently too, um, but then to like your point of like idea of like failure, then like iterations. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, like, you talking about that, like, for, like, artists, but do you feel, like, that same way for your, like, yourself as, like, a good curator? But then also, too, um, like, yeah, I feel like I'm really interested also in the idea of, like, experimenting with, like, the structures of things, like, what is a biennial, like, Mm -hmm. what is curating, um, versus, like, as you said, um, some people that just, like, want to see beautiful things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they don't want to, like, anything new, they just, like, want what they're expecting, um, 
and then yeah like so i'm interested in the place of like trying to experiment with those things and then um being prepared for like potential like yeah like not landings um and then thinking about um the audience's comfort in like that regards mm-hmm. like how much should we be mindful of that as like a curator as an artist um and then also wondering like about these ideas of like um experimenting with structures like being different um from like different people versus like um the idea that like oh anybody experiments with structure it could like land root like weirdly or like um the idea that like oh it was like a white man doing it that's like way less interesting or daring or even experimenting with the structure than if like a person of color does something with that and then trying to like navigate like potential like audience discomfort even like among like a white audience like a mostly white audience navigating like their comfort versus trying to like disrupt like a a racist system Mm -hmm. um yeah i guess if all that is a (laughs) yeah Yeah. um i think about all white audiences never um for me it's just like i mean i think like from the things that i've made um no institution would invite me with that expectation you know what i mean like at this point like that's a that's a fool's errand (laughs) to um invite an independent curator that like doesn't do that like I feel like most of the things that I get invited to do are like explicitly because the institution's like eek we need to like look like (laughs) we need to like look like we like support black things so will you come (laughs) will you come do something other than what we normally do so like I'm pretty lucky that I exist outside of that frame I mean no one exists outside of that frame we're in Portland Oregon there are however many white people there are um but I'm just very lucky that um I've never really like been asked to like think through or consider that you've got me thinking about I just can't even think about what museum it was but the guy that just got fired because they were um the job posting was like we're looking for someone that's like going to be forward thinking about exhibitions and public programs while being meticulous not to alienate our traditional white audience. Did you see that? I don't think so. This was a thing a few months ago. Um, the director of the museum has been fired, um, but they were looking to hire like a curator or a public programs person, and there was a line in there specifically about um, not alienating their traditional majority white audience with whatever this sort of programming was and I think that the subtext of that was like don't take this job and then try to do like political stuff (laughs) do you know what I mean yeah so like I'm thinking about that a lot and like again no one exists outside of that frame I'm not going to pretend like I'm in some very special vacuum um but I just don't think about it that much and I've never had an institution like ask me to think about it so um lucked out there um and I'm trying to think of what some of your other questions were in terms of like the implications of like doing weird or different exhibitions or experimenting with form again I think an institution that's not down with that hopefully just like has seen enough out of me that they wouldn't invite me if that's something that they're like hardline against um 
And then in terms of like implications for like what sort of spaces I work in or what that looks like for me, I mean, I think I just know like MoMA's not going to call me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I just know that. Like I know what kind of career I'm going to have and it's it's not that. You know what I mean? Like I'm never going to get like a big job at like a big institution that's like doing this that or the other thing like I've spent the past decade making exhibitions in like a closet or a garage or the woods or like do you know what I mean like that just this is the space that I'm in and it's like weird and quirky and like sometimes it doesn't work people are like why did I drive out here to look at this <laughs> and that's fine like I think that that um I'm not impervious to, like, having hurt feelings when someone's like, what the fuck is this? Um, but I, you know what I mean? Like, I just, that's where I am. That's, like, the kind of maker that I am. And, like, I'm going to fail a lot. I'm going to make things that don't make sense. I'm going to make things in iterations because I thought about it more and wanted to make it again. Um, that's just, like, where I'm at in terms of, like, being an arts administrator and trying to program stuff um so I just know I'm never gonna get the call to like do something at like a traditional institution I mean I think it's it's interesting you say that because you did get the call to do the Portland Biennial along mm-hmm. with Elisheba and Yael mm-hmm. and I think just in reading the press surrounding the biennial like before the opening mm-hmm. I think that you all were presented and packaged very much um in the way that you talk about your work. Like, um, from what I read, even in like the Willamette or whatever, you, all three of you are kind of presented as this um, kind of challenging of the old guard. Mm. Um, and kind of like thinking about um, kind of questioning or challenging the, the systems of biennials. Mm-hmm. So it's odd to me that you were all then criticized for mm-hmm. doing that very thing yeah again people like think that they want stuff that they don't want <laughs> so i mean in that regard i feel like you could easily get a call from like a moma or whatever um who's like trying to do some sort of like i don't know pr image whatever. Yeah. if that ever happens they'll be the first person i text but i think <laughs> neither of us should hold our breath on that one. um that Willamette week headline was just like hysterical I forgot what it said did it say something like the new I forgot what exactly it said it was something along those lines it was something crazy because I forget exactly what it was said but Yael and Liz Yael and Liz Yael and Elisheba and I all looked at each other and were like new guard where like we all are underemployed in like a big way do you know what I mean like (laughs) no one has like offered us a job or any sort of like position of power in any way Mm -hmm. um I'm grateful for the biennial opportunity but like yeah to what you describe like there are certain ways that like when folks invite me to do stuff I'm aware that I'm being instrumentalized in those Mm -hmm. ways like I'm aware that I'm being instrumentalized or tokenized as like a black woman I'm aware that I'm aware that I'm being instrumentalized or tokenized is like yeah temporary image correction or something like I'm I'm aware of that um I don't always care if I'm being paid money yeah uh, <laughs> same like okay uh 
whatever, um, but where's the bag? Exactly. And are you going to let me do what I want to do? Exactly. So. Like, I get what we're doing here, but I'm just going to leave it as long as I'm being compensated appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of the space that I uh, exist in. As long as there's nothing, like, straight up violent about, like, the positioning of it. Um, thanks. Here's my mailing address for that check. <laughs> <laughs> What are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, there's no, as much as I would love to, like, sit here and pretend to have, like, a really staunch moral grounding for, like, who I work with. Like, oh, I would never work with Ford or whoever because that's timber money. And, and I, you know what I mean? Like, as much as I would love to have, like, a really, really strict, um, there, there are no perfect institutions. So all yeah. I can do is take the resources that they're giving me to, like, spread it around and like do the best thing I can do with like this wealth and these resources that um I've been charged with distributing you know what I mean like I can't do anything about the institution's origin story but I can do something about like what happens next with this money yeah um this is I feel like kind of in the same like conversation we've been having um but something else that I've been like wondering or thinking about recently how do you feel about like content warnings for art or like yeah, for exhibitions or like specific pieces? I've never, and this is just me in like my experience with them, I've never seen one that I thought like was warranted. I feel like all of the content warnings that I've seen in museums have been like for the most ridiculous things. Like I feel like the kind of institution that's like worried about that sort of thing is always worried about it in like the stupidest way. Like content warning there are paintings in this gallery that feature nudity do you know what i mean like i've never seen a content warning that i was like thank god you warned me (laughs) (laughs) do you know what i mean like i've never it's always been like sort of anticlimactic to go in and see what the content warning is about so um yeah i wonder i'm also like what kind of institution is showing stuff that legitimately needs a content Mm. warning that's interesting to me like who's doing things over there and like what's that about i would love to know because that's interesting um i don't know have you ever seen a good content warning like literally like thank you that you warned me no i mean (laughs) (laughs) i yeah like no i i feel like that's something that um i didn't like think about or like realize but i feel like um with presenting art into the world dealing with places wanting to put content warnings on stuff um yeah but i don't like i don't know like i also wonder like about like the like positionality of like content warnings like um because i've this is like based on like some conversations i've had with like different people like around content warnings like um i guess content warnings obviously in different spaces but like specifically within like art exhibitions like um yeah, the idea that, like, it's maybe, like, um, more of these institutions, like, with more to lose having, like, content warnings or something, mm-hmm. but um, also, yeah, what are they choosing to content warn, mm-hmm. and then um, who's, like, making that, like, subjective decision, um, but then also, like, if content warnings should or do, like, play differently for, like, um, yeah, different artworks, like, artwork from, like, a black person, should that be, like, content warning if they're, like, it feels like there's, like, this level of potential, yeah. like, anti-blackness and potentially mm-hmm. in some content warnings. If there's some or, level of anti-blackness, I hope it's not there. Like, I hope institutions are smarter than that. But, like, 
I can think of what you're saying in terms of like there was the whole kerfluffle of like the Philip Guston mm. exhibition because it's like clan imagery. But even that, I'm like, <laughs> I feel like that kind of inner imagery hurts white feelings. Like yeah. black people are like, we know, like I could not possibly have seen more imagery of clan hoods in my life. Like I'm not shook right now. <laughs> I feel like it, you know what I mean? Like I feel like that's mostly for like, I don't know, performative. Yes. Like, <gasps> It's a clan hood. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like now that you mention that, I feel like a lot of museums these days are doing content warning around, like, political and racial content. But, like, I can't think of... I mean, I don't know. I guess, like... I don't know. Where it comes to, like, the other way around, like, true, like, anti-black stuff, there was the whole, like, Dana shoots Whitney mm-hmm. Biennial thing, and then, like, Parker Bright standing in front of it. Black um, Death Spectacle? Yes. Um, I think that could have used a content warning. I think it shouldn't have been there. That's what I'm saying, though, is I'm, like, anything that would really, truly, like, earnestly rise to the level of a content warning, I think... I don't know. And, like, I know that gets into, like, sticky censorship stuff. But, like, if it was me, it just wouldn't be there. It just wouldn't be there. Like, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not on, like, the burn it train. But I am on, like, a place of honor in the Whitney Biennial. Probably not. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Again, I think the majority. there. Are, I don't feel like there's that many instances of, like, this had a content warning and it like needed it. Like I can't think of a work that I'm like, it was in the show, I'm glad it was in the show, it had a content warning, I'm glad the content warning was there. Like all of those things are typically not true for me. It's either like, I'm not glad it's in the show, which means that like the content warning also could have gone away just like with the whole thing, like Mm -hmm. throw the whole thing away. Or it's like, I'm glad it was in the show, but the content warning is on some, like, hyper-fragile, toxic, liberal, whatever. Um, So, I don't know. We'll have to keep our eyes open for, like, what was a good one. I'm sure it exists, but I can't think of one. So, in the instances that you've seen content warnings for, like, artwork that you felt like it didn't need it, did it take away from the artwork for you or did it like ruin your experience with the artwork it made me laugh and it made me know what kind of institution i'm in Mm. do you know what i mean like this is an education department that exclusively employs 45 year old white women Mm -hmm. who said that this needed to be here do you know what i mean like (laughs) it tells me where i am it doesn't tell me anything about the work it tells me more about the context in which i'm looking at it So, you know, we've been talking about institutions for a minute, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to kind of lighten it up a little bit. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What is your art's origin story? Oh, this is good. (laughs) Um, So I feel like this is a lot of arts administrator's story. Um, I... When I was in, like, the second grade, we did this thing, like, this teacher had, like, a piece of paper where you were supposed to, like, draw a picture of yourself at 25 and, like, answer questions about, like, what you thought you were going to be like. And then you, like, fold it up. There's a walnut shell. Did y'all ever do this? Am I, like, talking crazy? There's a walnut (laughs) shell. shell. Um, 
there was a walnut that broke in half and like we had the shell you put the piece of paper in the walnut shell and glue it shut and then it was like a christmas tree ornament forever and then you're supposed to break it open when you are 25 and like see what you wrote about yourself when you were like eight or whatever mm-hmm. i opened mine when I turned 25, my <laughs> parents were very like, gotta open this thing. I actually had forgotten about it, which is hysterical on the level that apparently my parents had been like, waiting in with bated breath for me to turn 25 so I could crack this walnut. Um, <laughs> but I did open it when I turned 25 and I had drawn like this truly insane picture of myself. It was a stick figure, but like with like whatever sort of clothes I thought like, were hot girl 25 year old clothes (laughs) (laughs) and then I had written that I thought that I was going to be an artist we all could have guessed from what I drew that that was not going to come to be and it did not come to be I have no (laughs) that's not that ain't it that wasn't how that came together um but I think I've always liked art and I don't know where that comes from no one in my family cares about art at Mm. all I have um, I have a cousin that's an actor, and it's like he and I over here on our own branch of the tree <laughs> by ourselves. Like, cool. Um, so no one in my family like really has a particular affinity for art at all. So I don't know where that comes from. But like, I have my evidence as early as like eight years old. I was like, art's for me. Um, and then I was like, in, I wasn't cool in high school or anything. So I like interned at the in the education department of the museum when I was 16. Hmm. And then I, that was like my after school thing, like going to the museum. Um, and then I went to undergrad and did art history. I went to grad school um, and ended up doing a curatorial practice degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did a combo um, BA, BFA in undergrad, art history and studio practice and like very clear that the studio practice is going absolutely nowhere (laughs) i didn't want to get an art history phd because i thought that that would lock me into teaching which you know lol because here i am anyway (laughs) just by having like not done that um but a curatorial practice program felt like a beautiful middle ground for me to like figure out like what's between like having an artist practice and just like being an art historian that's writing. Um, So I went to a curatorial practice program and have battled ever since about like, again, is a curator what I'm calling myself? I don't know. Like I make exhibitions, but like, I don't know. Um, Yeah, and I still don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna end up. I have worked in like every sort of arm of the arts ecosystem, I've worked in commercial galleries, I've worked at artist residency programs, I've worked in university galleries, I've like sort of done all the sort of little branches of the arts ecosystem and um, I'm still figuring out how to, where I where I live and where I belong and we'll see how old I am before I, I figure <laughs> that out. Um, but I'm out here, trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so my last question for you, um, actually is, um, so on your Twitter, your first line is X-Files. Uh-huh. So my question is, um. Yes, finally, you... <laughs> good stuff. Asking the hard-hitting questions. Yes. Thank you, yeah. So, um, I've, like, I've 
known about X Files, but only like maybe within the last couple of years, like watched like the first few seasons. Uh huh. Um, but yeah. So are you are you a Mulder? Are you a Scully? <sighs> Either, both. Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what kind of monster doesn't say Scully? I don't know. Jillian <laughs> Anderson is an icon. There's no saying Mulder, but <laughs> I will try to, like, make the counter argument. I, like, I'm trying to, like, think of, like, is there any instance where I would say I'm a little bit of a Mulder? Um, and I would say, what I would say about Scully is, Scully is the eternal skeptic, which is an energy you got to respect and that I share. But, but... No matter how many sort of, like, existential supernatural threats they faced, she always still needs to be convinced that something supernatural is going on. And I'm just like, sis, at what point (laughs) do you just settle into being a believer? Like, at what point can Mulder stop being like, maybe it's aliens? And apparently the answer is never. There's an iconic arc where she gets abducted. And even after that, she's still, like, needs convincing and i'm just like what do you want like, <laughs> what do you want and so i'm definitely a scully but i have like a hair of respect for Mulder in that he has just like settled into being a believer and i think that's valuable to be like i believe what next like how do i dig into these like other possibilities of like other universes and other things i no longer am like no longer have like my nails in the ground of like this is an ordinary world with limited possibilities so i respect molder for that but i'm never gonna say molder like that can't happen scully yes big scully energy (laughs) all right i guess my final question before we start to close out is like anything exciting and new on the horizon like not work related That's a great question. New and exciting, not work related. Oh, I bought a camper. Okay, I was hoping you would talk about that. Yes. Okay. We bought a camper. It's adorable, but also just like the worst purchase on the planet. (laughs) I'm not sorry, but like this thing is like, it's a gift when it starts. It's like that kind of purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a 1982 Volkswagen Westphalia camper van. It's air-cooled, which means like literally the breeze from driving is like what's cooling off all the innards. <laughs> like there's no like actual mechanism for keeping this car like functional and under control. It's air-cooled, so anytime we are like stopped... Like, if we're going through, like, a drive-thru something or something and we're, like, stalled, like, the car's running but not moving, uh-huh. everything's just getting hot as hell and then, like, we're stuck. It happened a couple weekends ago. We drove to Troutdale to get this delicious ice cream from um, this place called Sugar Pine Drive-In. Hmm. And we had to stay in Troutdale for, like, two hours because the van overheated and would not start. And we just had we just had to wait. There's nothing to do. Um it's automatic but there's no power steering so this thing is just like a boat like literally like oh wow trying to like make a quarter turn is like the olympics 
Um, it's trash. I don't know if you saw the. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the photo that I posted, but this upholstery is like the most eighties, yeah, disgusting, but like beautifully disgusting upholstery ever. I don't have plans to change it. Okay. I love her just the way she is. Um. So it's like kind of ironic to have a camper that you probably are not going anywhere in. Like I don't know. Okay, so we're gonna you... we're gonna try. Okay. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> we're gonna try, but like I imagine from the moment we pull out of our driveway, it's gonna take us like three weeks to get to Seattle. <laughs> it's that kind of vehicle. Mm-hmm. It was a pandemic purchase of like planes are not safe. We're never going anywhere again. Yeah. Let's get a van. (laughs) And boy, did we get a van. And that will be the title. (laughs) Boy, did we get a van. Let's get a van. Let's get a van. van. (laughs) We bought a van. We bought a van. Like we bought a zoo. Yeah. (laughs) It's about the same level of like this was a good idea. Spoiler, it wasn't. So, I guess now it's time for our segments. Um, and I will start with the Sealy's glass of water, a special prize for folks who are doing the most with the absolute least. So, today's glass of water goes out to the CIA. Oh, and no. this is almost a half-hearted glass for two <laughs> reasons. One, I'm pretty sure my assigned federal officer listens to this and I'm not trying to piss him off today. Hey, Bob, what's good? And two, this ain't new. They've been playing in our face since their inception. It's not the first time they've been flagrant with a general disregard, and it won't be the last time. But they have recently dropped a CIA recruitment video, um, which we'll cut into this episode for your reference. I'm a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box checking exercise. I am a walking declaration a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you.
Also, side note, am I the only one who didn't know that CIA recruitment videos are still a thing? Anyway, we are introduced to a female CIA agent named Mia, who states, I am a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. So really checking off every square on the diversity and inclusion bingo card. Um, and on and on it goes with some BS about imposter syndrome and patriarchy and intersectionality, which don't even get me started with the problem there. Um, while she girl bosses her way through random shadowed hallways while wearing a t-shirt with the raised fist icon. So, this is a general fuck you to the CIA for appropriating the language and aesthetics of radical ideology when one of the very reasons for your existence is the quelling of such belief systems. It's like, y'all don't even care anymore. There is nothing clever or covert about any of this. It's sloppy, under-researched, and frankly, I expect better from the creators of Cointelpro. I really want you, I really, really want you to not exist one day and one day soon. I wish nothing but the worst things for you, and I just want you to keep the names and memories of the people and communities whose lives you've helped destroy out of your fucking mouths. I sincerely hope that at this point in 2021, no one is stupid or passive enough to consider this propaganda for even a millisecond, and that we all know what it is. One can dream. I say all this not because I think the CIA cares, clearly they don't, but because I need them to understand how ridiculous and transparent they truly are. Hell yeah. Flamed. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. Although Africans and African Americans have been and remain underrepresented in game development professions, pioneering black engineers and game designers such as Gerald Jerry Lawson and Ed Smith played important roles in the burgeoning video game industry. Working in Silicon Valley in the 1970s, Lawson led the team that designed the Fairchild Channel F, 1976, the first home video game console with removable game cartridges. This revolutionary approach to video games made previous consoles with dedicated Pong game variations virtually obsolete as customers could purchase a growing library of different games for their system. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. Wow, that was some interesting. <laughs> wow, that was an interesting fact. <laughs> now on to parting words. Yes. So, Max, do you want to start with your parting words? I'll start with my parting words. Yes. Thank you, Melanie. Okay. <laughs> um, first off, yeah, thank you, Ashley, for being our guest, for uh, being our first in person person <laughs> of um i think since what 2019 yes yeah, since late 2019 because wow. we didn't record anything in the beginning of 2020 i don't think so i can't remember anyways no. um but yeah thank you for being here it's been like super fun talking to you and um potentially i could talk to you so much longer um about aliens and um what was the other thing <laughs> that you said um mortal combat part two yeah <laughs> all the things um but yeah this has been super fun so thank you Thank you, Ashley. Um, thank you, Melanie, for always being amazing co-hosts. Um, I've had so much fun today. Thank you to all the listeners. Um, shout out everybody that's been with us for the past 31 episodes. Um, we're continuing to grow and evolve, and I hope um, you'll enjoy it. And um, 
Those are all my parting words. <laughs> all right. Um, my parting words are thank you, Ashley, for saying yes and agreeing to record with us today. Um, it's always a kind of a pleasure speaking with you about your work um, and just your general thoughts and opinions on what's going on with this work. Um, for me, you've been very much kind of a, a very um, significant presence um, in the Portland arts landscape. So it's really just an honor f that you came to talk with us. Um, thank you, Max, as usual, for being awesome. Um, and, you know, all the things. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it for me. Um, and we will let Ashley have the final parting words. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for having me. I've been um, really excited that the two of you are doing this, and I feel like I can retire now that I like, <laughs> got to do this. So I'm really grateful to have spent this time with you, and um, I'll never listen to it, but... <laughs> That's fair. Thank you so much for having me. I am the one that should be honored. It's really, really cool to get to hang out with you both. All right. All right, cool. Thank you. Bye, y'all. Bye, all. <laughs>